HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet. Learn more at bintotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month. Welcome to Jupiter's Almanac. I'm Matthew Rayford, the great-great-great-grandson of Jupiter Gilliard, a former slave who bought the land I now farm in Georgia nearly 150 years ago. Through the years, my ancestors have passed on some essential and hard-earned wisdom about growing and producing the food we eat. It's my great honor to share that inheritance and to invite other farmers from Georgia and around the country to share their tips with you. It's an opportunity for us to slow down and to connect and to plug in. And the farm does that in a way that lets you connect and appreciate the life that exists and nurture and cultivate that and then extend that to the relationships to the people who are in that house with you and your community. So if you are just starting out, reconnecting with the land or a seasoned farmer, join the conversation. And to be honest with you, it was like, would Warren come out and say, hey, I want to be a farmer? Probably not. I I consider myself a city kid. You know, when we initially got a horse, you know, I have that New York City mindset, a horse. I'm thinking thoroughbred horse, aqueduct racetrack, (laughs) Belmont racetrack, those type of things, you know, And, and, and slowly but surely I'm starting to understand a lot more. I do remember early on, like, you know, the first month or two of dating, how we would daydream about starting a farm together. And it's kind of like, hold on, let's like pump the brakes and get to know each other first and then talk about that, you know? <laughs> so what got me into chickens? Um, I always joke and say that a chicken saved my life. Um, and it very much so did. I'm interested in Black liberation that's ecological and that's not contingent upon... <sighs> these systems giving us anything. There's also something that's beyond this that I want and that I seek for our for our people and that's intimacy with the land and that's reliability. And so for us, it's also this idea of connecting people back to the land and connecting our um, folks back to their ancestry. So what does it mean to organically, sustainably farm in our current economy and time? 
please subscribe to Jupiter's Almanac wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Patrick Cappiello. We'll talk to Patrick about the transition from psalm to winemaker. We'll talk about the California fires, spend a lot of time on Monte Rio cellars, and more. We'll taste the Lodi Old Vine Zin and Patrick's Skull Red Blend for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Patrick Cappiello has been in the wine biz for almost 30 years, and he ain't an old guy. He's been an award-winning sommelier, restaurant owner, and wine importer distributor. Patrick is now the owner-winemaker of his own wine label, Monte Rio Cellars, in Sonoma County, with partner Pax Molly. Patrick crafts wine from grapes in the spirit of old California, a style lacking of oak and high alcohol with pure fruit and high acid. Welcome back to the Grape Nation, Patrick. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's great to be back. Due to the COVID-19 virus, we're doing a remote broadcast via Zencaster. Patrick, you are out in Sonoma and Sebastopol, true? I am. I'm in the heart of Sebastopol right now. Uh, now. Now, physically, you're not sitting in some dining room or office. Where are you right now? <laughs> I'm in the winery. Okay. Yeah, so there'll be some, you may hear some forklift noise, but we, the, uh, the Wi-Fi and um, yeah, cell technology in West County of Sonoma is uh, problematic at best. So we find the spots where we can actually get signals when we do this sort of stuff and, uh, just go with it. So yeah, sorry. If we'll, we'll be all right. So <laughs> not, not only are we going to talk about how you're making wine, we're going to hear it in the background. True. Yes. You can hear yeah. it happening right now. Can, Things yeah. banging around. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll <laughs> mute just, myself when I'm not talking just to clear right. it up. So. All right. So Patrick, you know, you've been on the show and, um, in the other show, we talked about, you know, your ascension in wine. I want to just get people from a point to a point, um, you know, to current. You, not that many years ago, you know, two, three years ago, maybe less than four, um, you left Pearl and Ash, your restaurant, and Rebel, your restaurant bar, Michelin starred, um, to your current situation. Just quickly give me, you know, the the chronology and the journey from getting from there to here and why yeah i mean so both of those restaurants closed within uh, a year of each other um kind of you know un unexpectedly um real estate had a lot to do with it uh my partners owned the buildings and sold the buildings and then obviously the you know the the climate of new york restaurants was a big part of it back then a lot of restaurants were opening and a lot of restaurants were closing and you know being in the restaurant business is is, is challenging so yeah 
I was, you know, it was, I was fully committed and completely excited to finally be owning a restaurant. I always wanted to own a restaurant my whole life and it finally happened and we had a lot of critical success and I think people, you know, that were coming to the restaurant were loving it and uh, unfortunately it didn't translate to what we hoped in the end and so uh, when the restaurants closed I was definitely bummed out. I was went through a pretty significant period of depression, um, got some got some help with that, uh, which led, led me to the idea of trying to transition into something new, um, which eventually led to winemaking. So, right. Yeah. Um, so that was about 2016, 17, right? Not yeah. Yeah. Long. Yeah. I think we closed rebel in 17. That's all such a blur. <laughs> yeah. <But> yeah. <laughs> it's not that long ago, but you know, no. it is a while ago and in light of everything going on, it's like forever. Um, do you think, if the restaurants, you know, were still going, that you'd be in California today making wine? Um, probably not. I would be busy working in the restaurants, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I don't think I don't think I would. And so, in a lot of ways, it's really kind of amazing because yeah. I'm very happy. I mean, aside from all the challenges that we're facing now. Um, yeah. But well, let's yeah, let, let's talk about that. You know, California. Uh, you know, because you're out there, I want to get your take on a bunch of things. Um, California's experiencing the worst fires in its history. I mean, there's over 4 million acres burning and now wine country hasn't been spared. Um, tell me firsthand, um, what's going on with the fires. Cause when I reached out to you last week to confirm the show, you said, dude, listen, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on here. Let's just stay in touch. This may or may not happen. So tell me what's going on as far as the fires, how it affects you, the winery, the vineyards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, you know, there, there has been a series of fires and it just, it, first of all, the fire season this year is not only a record amount, but it's a record um, timeline. This is the earliest like fires have ever been in North really? California. Okay. You, you, fire season is usually starting right now. Actually, we're just headed into fire season, which is the whole reason, which is another reason why all of us are so fucking terrified because we may go through a whole other round of these. Um, a lot of the things that push the fires uh, is like a late summer um, heat. And then there's what in uh, the Southern California, they call the Santa Ana winds, what they call up here, they, we call them the Diablo winds, which is the m mountain just to, uh, uh, east of Napa County. And it, it's these winds that strangely change direction. So they blow, you know, normally we understand the jet stream and coastal winds in, in California, winds start in the ocean out West and they move, you know, right. Eastward. Uh, what happens with these strange winds that happen in October is the winds go in reverse and they're big gusts, like 75 mile an hour gusts. Wow. So the fires last year, the fires in 17, those were all fueled by these reverse winds. So when the winds go the opposite way, all these trees that are like kind of used to going one direction that hang over a lot of power lines, uh, once they're flipped backwards, you know, that's when they start breaking and breaking power lines and then fires start and then wind starts to push it into into the west, the you know, the western side of Sonoma County and Napa, Napa County areas that, you know, don't, they're, they're, you know, they're heavy vegetation. Like I live in, I live in Occidental. It's like, it's a tinderbox, we call it. I mean, West County, uh, West Sonoma County hasn't burned since the 40s. And we're all just like, wow. you know, constantly being afraid of when that is going to happen because it's like very full of fuel. So um, this set of fires were started by something different. They weren't started by the, by the Diablo winds. They were started by this lightning storm that happened. It was a dry lightning storm. I'm, I'm never forget the, 
the night of it, I was with Pax and Pam, Pax, my business partner Pax and his wife Pam. Um, I live uh, on their property, um, on a trailer on their property, and we were uh, drinking some wine um, outside, and it was a warm night. And Pam had said, you know, there's these, there's supposed to be a dry lightning storm tonight. Um, which, which is lightning seen. with no yeah. rain. Right. And we, I mean, but lightning doesn't even exist on the West coast. West coast. There's like, a couple other, I know I heard really, that before. It's, it's so weird. Yeah. It's really strange. I mean, the things that don't exist on the West coast and, you know, I grew up on the East coast my whole life. They don't, they also don't have lightning bugs here, which is very strange. <laughs> it's kind of the thing I miss when I go home and I see lightning bugs. It's uh, so nostalgic for it, but, um, but lightning really doesn't exist at all. And dry lightning is something crazy. So the, the night, of this dry lightning storm, there was a bunch of strikes that happened in the, the, the hills in Napa. Um, and it ignited all these fires and it just went crazy. Uh, and then, you know, the heat was already bad uh, right. this year early and it was really hot. I mean, in fact, we were, we, we, were, we were harvesting grapes before these fires even started, which is insane. And my first fruit came in. Um, when did my first fruit come in? I think first last week of July, something crazy like that. The, wow. and it's like, you know, it was very uncommon. And then, yeah, the fire started and then, and then right when they we basically were getting them under control, there was another round of fire. It got to be up to, you know, 110 degrees up in Healdsburg. And then these fires started breaking out, uh, you know, the glass fire, which is the one we're, we're just right. fighting now. That's almost right. out. It's like 50%. Uh, they said contained. 50%. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple of questions about fires and wine. You know, I've been on, I cut my teeth on Napa wines, you know, 30 years ago, and I've been on mailing list. I got a uh, email from Schaefer that they will not be bottling the 2020 wine um, because they feel they can't do it. So quickly tell, tell me a couple things. What happens to grapes that haven't been harvested and exposed to the smoke? Can they be damaged or not necessarily? I mean, yeah, yeah. what's your no, for experience? Sure. For sure. So smoke taint is what we call it. Um, it's but I'm happens. talking about hanging grapes. Yeah, but smoke, it's called, so the problem that exists is called smoke taint. And smoke taint, basically what happens is grapes are all on the vine right. and the smoke comes into the vineyard. The grapes are, you know, they're, 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 a, they're, they're a living organism, right? They're right. breathing. And so basically the, the smoke that's in the vineyard, you know, penetrates the skins of the grape, gets it inter, you know, intercellular into the grapes and then becomes part of the grapes. And there's the smoky flavor that is imparted to the right. grapes. And then so they're, they're like you said, they're a living, you know, seller or whatever. Right. What happens, what happens if you've picked the grapes, you know, before, during or after the fire and they're in open vats and you know how foggy, smoggy, smoky it was. Does it yeah. have an effect before you get it sealed in a barrel? No, I'm, once the wine's in barrel, you're good. I mean, like in 2017, for example, you know, when that, that was a big set of fires, we, we had everything, you know, so working with PAX here at the winery and everything at that point was either fermenting or in barrel, no, no problems at all. Um, you, the smoke taint really is a vineyard thing. Um, right. And that's why right now there's struggling to figure out ways to mitigate it and to combat it. There's like yeast strains are saying that fix it and Really? So, and also, you know, there's the question of where, how, how, how are the vineyards affected? So like for me, uh, I'm very, very lucky in the fact that the vineyards I work with are primarily in Lodi and in Mendocino County. Right. So two counties that were not near the fires. Now when I, when in Lodi, there was smoke that was coming from Napa, from Napa for sure, but, but it's about concentration of smoke. So right. by the time it traveled the 80 miles or 60 miles that it needed to travel to my vineyards in Lodi, 
the smoke content was was much more mild. So we tested all the grapes that I harvested from Monterio. I have no smoke taint um, in, in my wines. And, and, and there are a lot of people that are miraculously are getting that in, Sinapa, in, in Napa and in Sonoma, a few places. But uncommon in those areas, especially in Napa. Yeah. Um, not that I want to try and, you know, get people uninterested in, in drinking wines from any vintage. I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, it, everybody is going to be dealing with it. I mean, you know, there's a wait list at the lab here, ETS Labs, which just does all of our testing. Everybody's sending samples in? Saying, yeah. What's that? Everyone's sending samples in. Yeah, it's like, they're, they're saying it's like a 30-day turnaround to know. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's now, a problem, but it's not the first time. Oh, wait, no, no, smoke I know. And, it's yeah. just every yeah. year now. Last thing, you know, when you plant a vineyard, fires or no fires, you know, it takes three, four, five, seven, eight years before, you know, you could pull grapes off and make wine, whatever, you know, people's schedules are. If a vineyard burns to the ground to replant, is it the same thing? You got to replant and you got to wait four, five, six, seven years? Well, I mean, the, vine the vineyards aren't necessarily burning, right? I mean, No, but if they do, if somebody yeah. loses, you know, the vineyards, that's another yeah. five-year proposition. I have no idea. So, so, I mean, you know, the one, the one thing about most of us out here is not, most of us are not farmers, right? We, we're... It's not the French model in California as a whole. You know, yeah, no. there, are some, there are some wealthy people who can afford to buy vineyards and farm them and make wine from them. But, you know, most of us are young, young people who are, you know, we, we work with farmers that, that, that are farming the vineyards for us. And we're, we're, working, we're collaborating with them in, on what we want right. in the end to harvest. But I have no, you know, I couldn't even answer that question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when we talk about Monte Rio, you know, we'll talk about, you mentioned Lodi and Mendocino. We'll talk about, you know, the farms and the vineyards you get wine from. I'm just curious, you know, moving on, how has your life been, you know, for you and, and for, you know, the growth of Monte Rio during the pandemic? You know, I know you've been bi-coastal. Um, I, I guess you were kind of stuck in New York for a little bit. You know, how has life been? Has it had a major effect on the business? I know it has on your personal life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my COVID journey, you know, I was, what was it? I, I think on February 14th, I was, which is hot, well, Valentine's Day, I, was, I saw the Melvin show in the Mystic Theater in Petaluma. Uh, <laughs> two, days later, two days later, I left to come to New York for La Palais. And then uh, after La Palais, I had scheduled a lot of work in New York. I just released my fall release of wines. I had a whole whole set of um, uh, uh, like trips planned for um, uh, not only in New York, like events in New York, but also events in uh, a bunch of other states and market cities. trips for the wine. Yeah, to, to go to go sell yeah. wine. So I sell right. wine in about ten states. So I was going to be in like North Carolina and South Carolina. I was going to be in Oklahoma and Texas. I was basically going to use New York as a hub. Right. That way, I could work. I, I just switched to start working with David Bowler, who's my distributor in New York now, which I was very excited about. Thank and you know, I, was, I had planned all these events. I was going to do wine dinners and just everything I could do. Anything you normally do when you're not making wine as a winemaker to try and you know. Um, to, to, to sell your wine. That's the other half of it, right? right. Uh, you, once you make it, you got to sell it. Uh, so I had a lot of stuff planned and a lot of, a lot of sales trips planned, but I was going to be based in New York. And then uh, after La Palais, I remember all of a sudden things were just getting kind of weird. And I remember me not really, you know, like all of us, I think we kind of knew about COVID, but it, was, it wasn't really something any of us were as concerned i had a few friends that were right. definitely more aware and you know a little <laughs> probably even telling me but I, I i i wasn't taking it as seriously at that point you know, with it actually being a threat 
as uh, we all are now. But anyhow, uh, so I was in New York and, and uh, yeah, I mean, all of a sudden everything was shutting down. <laughs> Isn't it and, crazy? Uh, and being like, hey, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. He's like, well, dude, if you're going to come, like, you got to come now. Because like from what I hear, it's it, things are only going to get worse. And right. probably especially in New York. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. So I was like, well, I wanted to give it a week and see. I was figuring, you know, restaurants might be open in a week or two. And yeah. uh, and then two weeks later, it was like, you know. It escalated. Hundreds of people dying a day. And Pax was like, yeah, you know what? We, You're good. You should just stay where you are. And all but, my tri- sales trips got canceled. And so basically, I had I had no ability to, to do anything that I had planned. And I found myself kind of trapped in my fifth floor walk-up apartment, um, you know, wearing a hazmat suit to go shopping. and Eating pork chops, making steak. Just like everything we were all doing, you know. Yeah. Uh, And so I just kind of, you know, leaned into it, tried to have some fun. All my friends from California were sending me wines to drink, which was really awesome. Uh, But, you know, I'm alone in my apartment, so a bottle of wine went down a lot quicker than it probably should have most of the time. But, you know. We did the um did not it, we dealt with it did not making the market trips um affect business or things worked out okay oh despite- i mean yeah i mean i, I well he, you know the what's happening with the mark with the wine market right now for these people that i work with um and people that i'm in contact with in california you know restaurants are a huge part of what we do and who we sell wine to, right? Right. Um, and a lot of these, a lot of the winemakers that I make make wines that are a little bit higher end than what I do. Uh, and so, you know, the retail wine world is much different than the restaurant wine world. And yes. big companies like Constellation, uh, these big companies that mass produce heavily chemically made wines that, uh, you know, they churn out, you know, like, uh, like the Tens way Budweiser of brews of cases, beer. Yeah it's you know it's easy for them to make wines that are that are cheap but when you're you know a person like scott schultz who makes jolie laid like you know it's one guy and you know he's right. working with really amazingly farmed vineyards and you know he's he's putting a lot of care into hand handcrafting his wines just like i try to do or, or i right. believe i do so you know you got the wines wind up costing more money as a result Right. When you're not like, you know, adding all the, do, when you don't have a big company behind you, you're, you need to pay yourself and need to feed yourself. So anyway, a lot of these small producers whose wines are, you know, mainly in restaurants, retail for 30 to 35, 40 bucks a bottle, things started to get challenging because, you know, their distributors are small. They're not working with Southern Wine and Spirits or any of these big distributors that own Total Wine and BevMo and all these fucking places, right. you know, that just spit out wine, these wine factories. So it's hard for us to compete in that level. And when all of a sudden everybody was stuck at home and they weren't going to restaurants, we had to figure out a way to sell our wine. And, you know, we, we, we can all sell wine direct to our consumers, but we have an ear, earmarked a fair amount of wine for the, for, the, for the marketplace. And from that, a lot of it is, is restaurants. So right. now getting retail stores to pay attention to us, and you know what, probably half of them are pissed that we never paid attention to them in the beginning. So rightfully, rightful on them not to want to talk to us. But now we find ourselves scrambling to try and reconnect with right. buyers and retail stores that maybe we weren't paying attention to before. So right. it makes it hard. I, I see. Um, you were gracious enough to send me wine at the end of the show. We do a thing called the weekly wine sip, but I got two bottles here. Um, David Gordon packed them up at Bowler and shipped them out and they showed up today, which was great. So let's 
quickly talk about one wine and then at the end of the show we'll talk about the other wine i got a glass in front of me of the mrc monte rio cellars red wine it's the black label with the white skull um it's a blend talk to me quickly about this wine it's the 2019 right right so that's the first vintage we made that wine um you know uh so kind of almost piggybacking on what i was saying like understand before covid hit i already felt like there was a lack of California wine that was being produced, handcrafted by, by, you know, caring people and were able to compete at that level of like $20 and under, uh, how, you know, how do we compete with, 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 with Constellation or any of these big, big fucking brands that, you know, just own these things. So I wanted to make a wine like that. So Pax and I did a lot of research. The one thing we realized is we had to go to Lodi to look for fruit or Mendocino kind of outside of Sonoma County to look at vineyards that were, there were old vineyards that they had produced great fruit, but were from Appalachians that maybe we were less paid attention to. And the fruits, the fruits are much, much less expensive. So we did that, you know, straight away. And then, um, wait, wait, wasn't there a perception that like Lodi and Mendocino were commodity vineyards and all the big, you know, wines came out of there? Well, they did, but also look at, you know, look at Ravenswood. Ravenswood was making wine right. out of there. And so, and then Bedrock, who's Joel Peterson's son who had Bedrock, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who had uh, Ravenswood. He's making one of their Tegan Pascalaco, who has Sandlands. Right. Like it, it was already started. I'm not the first person to go to Lodi for sure, but I think right. I'm helping the cause, but the vineyards are fucking amazing, Sam. Yeah. They're old. I mean, the, the, the Zinfandel, the old vine Zinfandel, which we're going to taste later. That's a, that's a vineyard planted in the thirties. That, which right. is so also, some of that wine is in that, in, in that, bl- so that blend in front of you is uh, a, a Zinfandel vineyard planted in the thirties. Right. It's a mission vineyard, planted in the 40s and it's a um a uh, petite straw vineyard planted in the 60s so all super old vines um three you know varietals that probably most people don't think about as being blended together but you know what's the predominant um it's mainly uh, it's 50 percent petite straw 30 percent mission and 20 percent zinfandel so it's 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 kind of a deep you know purple a little you know translucence on uh, on the end you know beautiful nose you could, you know, smell the different, you know, grapes, fruits, all the characteristics of Petite, you know, and Zinfandel. Um, it's got a beautiful mouthfeel. Um, and it's, it's delicious. You know, it's a, it's a little <laughs> crunchy. It's fresh. You know, you could feel the acidity. It's, you know, for a 19, for a young wine, I'm like, how the hell am I going to mask this grapey shit that he sent me? <laughs> and it happens to be, you know, a really nice wine. Now, a wine like this can benefit. You could drink it right away, benefit from, you know, sitting in a I mean, wine it's, fridge it's, or a cellar for a so, couple so, of so, years. So, so let's talk about that wine. It costs $18 retail. Okay. $18. Drink it now. And then there's, there's only, no, no. I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't think any wine has a label on it saying drink this now. I think wine can age. Does it always get better with age? Not always, but does it get more interesting? Sometimes I'm sure that wine will be just as good, if not better in a year or two or three. I think you could hang on to that. That's what I'm thinking. Hang on to 20 years and see what it, see what it turns into just out of interest sake. But you know, that's what I'm thinking. Do the old, do the old vines, because all of these are anywhere from, you know, 40 to 70. Do the old vines make it a more ageable wine? Yeah, because concentration, right? You know, like, like like that happens with old vines. You know, the, the vines have more density and concentration, and uh, yeah, I mean, the acid, like you mentioned, is one of the things that's really cool about Lodi. It's super hot there, right? I mean, like Lodi is, gets to be in the hundreds for most of the summer, 
But in the evenings, it gets down to like 50 degrees. It's a huge shift wow. in temperature. So that that acidity is really retained by you know by by that by that fact. Right. So I think you know it's it, I don't I mean I I'm I'm hanging on to a lot of the wines. I'm trying to keep an old library just for my own interest, but obviously to share with people as time goes on. So right. I'll let you know how the wines age. But I yeah, I'm curious. I, I this this tastes like it. You know it could uh hang around a bit there's nothing that my desire is for you to buy a case of it and drink it on as your nightly wine that's that's what it's intended right. to be right you know? if, <laughs> if a couple of bottles get lost let's see what they're like all right um before we get into monte rio sellers sellers um you and i have spent you know many uh, emails and uh, phone calls talking about um, the pan- pandemic and protests and how they've actually accentuated, you know, the lack of diversity and equality, certainly in wine and hospitality, our industry. Um, you know, I saw at some point you said that you've been a champion of woman, which is, you know, a big deal because women have been underserved in wine. But looking back, you know, it really hasn't been women of color, you know, which is honest. Um, we've seen a lot of activism, incredible voices, you know, our friends, Miguel de Leon, Julia Coney, Tahira, Habibi, you know, they're all making specific and proactive messages towards the problem. Um, you know, when I talk to somebody like you, who's sort of plugged into this, you know, what can you do? And then, you know, what can we do? you know, to make our industry better. And, you know, any step in the right direction is a good step. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I think you and I talked about it. I mean, you know, I was supposed to be coming on, you know, your first uh, episode and there was a lot happening. Right. And my concern was who wants to listen to two white dudes talk about wine? Like, And we, we of, backed kind of, away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And you, you were so, you know, yeah, I'm glad that you were on the same page as me. I mean, yeah, I mean, w- Every, things have happened in stages in the wine world, right? For sure, a white male-dominated industry, whether it was in the production or in the service or in all of it, um, just like so many industries, and right. you know, a, lo- a lot of people were, bl- you know, were blind to that to that realization, and still are. I mean, you know, I get pushed back all the time. You know, my social media is pretty aggressive towards you know the. Bl- Black Lives Matter movement and right. being progressive in, in changing things in our industry and in the world. And, you know, it's a scary thing, especially to white dudes who have money and power. They don't like that. But, right. you know, and, there, and there's a lot of reason that, that, that people in the wine industry have been less vocal. Uh, and it's because rich white dudes buy wine. But I could, I don't give a fuck about that. I, you know, if, if, my, if my statements upset you and you don't want to buy my wine, Go fuck yourself. That's 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 so, how I feel. So I, be I, it. I, I, I don't I don't I don't want to raise this as a as a as a as a client anyway. Um, but you know, I mean, I've learned a lot. I, I think that I, I think that you know, I, I was raised in a very religious household and and understood empathy and caring and love and compassion and all of these things. But understanding my white privilege and my inherent racist tendencies. Well, it took a while. And I think, you know, reading books like White Privilege and, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist, books that really helped me understand in my older age things I needed to fix about myself really opened my eyes. And, you know, I mean, we, we talked about women that I have hired, you know, Kim Prokoshin, who you know, right. uh, Kate, Kate Karuk, but also in Philadelphia, Adonessa um, Mpoke uh, is, is an African-American, black, but also African-American girl. Who, uh, who we hired as an assistant som and took over the program uh, at, at Walnut Street Cafe uh, after Caitlin left and now is at Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, you know, 
it was, it was, and this was years ago that we hi- we hired Eddie, and um, you know, so I feel like, yeah, at, at some point I started to realize the importance to diversify. You know, we we had some Asian Americans that worked for us at at Pearl and Ash, but understanding, you know, that same desire I had to bring women into the industry, I probably needed to be focusing more on BIPOC uh, sommeliers as well. And you know, it, it was complicated because it, it was hard to connect with and, and, and I think at some point understand the community that was out there that was that was interested in this and I think that was one of the things that a lot of white men were leaning on well I, I don't know who those people are and you right. know it's but here's the you know the point is is like you, you have to do the work right? right you there are people of every color that are interested in wine and you know if we are the people that wield the power if we're if we're the people that are the you know that are the gatekeepers for this it's our responsibility to go out and, and do the work to find people of color to help diversify our community and, and, you know, to be faithful to that and to, to make things better, make it a more, a more, you know, fair scenario than what it's been in the past. I, I agree with that. You know, I hope the activism continues, you know, a lot of times things heat up in a good way and then they cool down. I hope things remain steady and that people are more conscious you know, of what the right thing to do. And, you know, it starts, you know, with each person. I mean, you eloquently stated, you know, what you're doing, how you feel. Um, and I appreciate that. Um, Patrick, we're going to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about Monterio Cellars and, you know, dig into that a little. Um, I want to subject you to our wine list which you've done already but i want to get an update on what you're drinking um and then we'll taste the last um the second wine i'm talking to patrick capiello patrick is the owner winemaker of monte rio cellars um in sonoma california you're listening to the grape nation we'll be right back This episode is brought to you by Bin to Table, a monthly food subscription service for folks who want to cook with the best pantry ingredients on the planet, founded by Ben Simon. After working for President Obama, Ben spent five years traveling the world for Greenpeace, campaigning on climate change and sustainable agriculture. He always kept his eye out for delicious food to bring back home. Now, with everyone's travels on hold and home cooking more important than ever, Bin subscriptions provide a way for home cooks to experience different food cultures each month and put together nourishing, delicious meals with the best pantry items on the planet. With Taste the World, get a new shipment of different best-in-class ingredients to explore a new cuisine each month, along with tips and tricks to help out. We're talking delicious single-origin spices, cold-pressed olive oil, beautiful sauces, and lots of ways to use them. There's also an essential subscription which gets you a delicious assortment of heirloom, hard-to-find recipe staples. You can also get both each month with the full Ben to Table box subscription. Learn more at bentotable.com and use the code HRN at checkout to get $20 off your first month, and Ben to Table will donate $10 to HRN. All right, we're back. We're back with my friend Patrick Capiello. Patrick is the owner and winemaker of Monte Rio Cellars, um, based in Sebastopol, Sonoma, 
California. Um, Patrick, I've asked this question. I've done almost 200 interviews. I've asked this question dozens of times. Why is it that all sommeliers want to make wine? What was your reason? You talked about it a little, you know, because of the progressions from Pearl and Ash and Rebel, but what else? I mean, you know, uh, I think, you know, one of the things as sommeliers that we do probably more than anyone else in the industry is travel to wine regions and meet with winemakers, not only in, in their cellars, but in our restaurants. And the more time you spend with winemakers, the more you realize what a magical thing it is that they're able to do and how lucky they are to do it. And, you know, when you're working on the, I mean, so I was a sommelier working on the floor until I was 45. It's a pretty long time. Like Roger DeGorm's got me beat for sure. There are a few others that are, you know, that have done it for as long, but I, you know, I was a a floor som for that long. And I started when I was 28, 29. So, so at some point you, you kind of want to get off the floor Yeah, and you know, you can go into the wholesale side or that's an option, but. I don't know. I mean, I think so. Wait, part of it is it's, it's grueling, and it's hard to sustain that kind of you know existence or lifestyle, right? I mean, fair. yeah. I mean, you can't have a family. I mean, you know. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, di- I'm divorced and have been in and out of several relationships since then. Uh, you know, I, bar- I barely, I'm barely able to, right. to get my laundry done, let alone, let alone, <laughs> especially when I was working in restaurants. But let's you know, not worry we, about that during the pandemic. When things <laughs> clear up, we'll get you out there. We'll fix you up on a couple of dates. All right. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I think from I, I so think it's that, the business and the intrigue of wine and, you know, being exposed to guys like Jean Gonan and, you know, all the Burgundy guys. It's just captivating, right? Of course it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the, it, it, you look at their lifestyle, it seems pretty nice. Yeah. You know, but. All right. And now that I'm on the other side of it, I will say it does. I mean, you know, harvest is three very grueling months, seven days a week, 15 hours a day. Like it's, 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 it, you, you definitely put your time in. And then once that's done, then you have to go out and sell the wine. So, you know, n- winemaking is not any easier or more glamorous or more, you know, there's a romance with it for sure. It's right. a creative outlet. For me, that was a thing. Like I thought, what am I actually creating as a sommelier? Yeah, I'm creating a wine list. And I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm giving people memories. But what am I doing that actually like like is something? And I feel like I'm, I've always felt that I was a creative person, right. but never felt like I had a really creative outlet. So you that could was only goes so far as a psalm. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me how Monterio came about. I mean, obviously, you know, when the restaurants closed and you went through a period of time where you had time to think about it and you've known Pax for a long time, you know, so you had exposure to that, you know, how does this thing, you know, kind of come together and gel and grow? Well, I mean, you know, Pax and I had the conversation mainly when we'd had too much to drink for, for many Isn't years. Isn't that how it works? <laughs> I mean, I think that's how all great ideas come together. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, you know, we, we had talked about it a long time for a long time and, you know, Pax loves me and, and would do anything for me. He's one of my most loyal, uh, true friends. And, you know, I'm, I you know, I'm interested, I'm interested for me cause I have you, how did you meet Pax? I mean, when was the first time, obviously both of you are in the business, but you know, when was that time you met him and you became friends? How far well, was I mean, that go? we met when I worked at Veritas. So I started in okay. Veritas in 
2005 after I left Trebekah Grill. And, right. uh, you know, he, his wines back then were a little different stylistically. You know, he was a, he was a sweetheart of Robert Parker's uh, um, reviews. and He loved those uh, big wines. Parker. Right, yeah, yeah. and yeah. and and uh, Park B. Smith, who owned Veritas, was close with Robert Parker, and would buy whatever wines Parker loved. So he had a lot of Pax wines <laughs> on the list. So I was serving Pax's wines like crazy when I started there, and then Pax would come in with his then partner, who was friends with Park Smith, and we met then, and we 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 would you know at tasting say hello and kind of friends. But it wasn't until I opened Pearl and Ash that Pax and I really reconnected and started becoming true truly amazing friends. And right. he would just come to the bar and hang out, and we just started spending more and more time together. We realized you know a lot of our the things that we liked in common. We love music, you know. Um, Right. We it's just like we all like we like the same kind of wines. It's just it just was one of those things where uh, it was a it was a guy who I had a connection with. But the more time I spent with him, the more I realized, hey, this guy's like you know really a kindred spirit, like Matt Conway from Mark Forgione. Yeah, uh, Ryan he's Mills a sweetheart. Like, pe- yeah. pe- people that just other 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 people in in you know that 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 I that I had similar things in common with, and then the relationships continued to grow when. I started coming out and working harvest, hanging out, hanging out during harvest. I guess is more like it, but um, spending time out here, and then he really, you know, kind of like got me excited about about California, and then through him, you know, I met this girl that kind of like pulled me into Sonoma County fully, um, and then it was kind of like uh, that all it all kind of evolved from that. That was kind of like between him and my ex my ex girlfriend Sarah Morgenstern. Right. Those two things were the reasons that kind of brought me out here. Uh, and, and really solidified my idea of wanting to make wine. So that was kind of well, that, that, that thing. Probably better you broke up with Sarah than Pax, but we won't well, get Sarah, into that. Sarah, Sarah broke up with me. <laughs> okay. Hey, you didn't have to <laughs> no, say that. Um, <laughs> for some reason, I'm not surprised. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> hi, listen to me. Listen to me. You, you said before, you know, you're a small brand, and we know. I mean, we'll get into, you know, all the wines and how much of it you make. And, you know, what's interesting to me is you alluded to it and I even want you to get into it more is you got to do everything yourself. I mean, you really got to like make the wine, clean the tanks, labels, you know, bottling trucks. And then you got to go to Oklahoma and convince, you know, the biggest guy who's into sort of, you know, cool wines to buy it. Um, Tell me. Tell me how you have Monte Rio set up. I mean, you know, let me close my eyes and imagine, okay, you went out there. Tell me, you know, how it's set up. I mean, you're, you're sharing, um, you know, a winery and a crush pad. You know, how do you get wines to market? Just give me, you know, a little uh, background on that. Yeah, so well, there's there's seven wineries that make wine at this facility. So the, the facility used to be the Wind Gap facility. Pack right. stopped making Wind Gap um, two years ago, uh, and then after Wind Gap went away, there was a lot more room in the cellar. So he started inviting friends to come and make wine here. Now, Scott Schultz and Jolie Lee was already making wine here because he was the assistant winemaker for years. Jamie Packs. He was the assistant he was, yeah, for Pax? Yeah, he was. Okay. The, the assistant winemaker uh, legacy was Duncan from Arno Roberts, then right. Ryan from Rhyme, Ryan Glab from Rhyme, and then uh, Scotty Schultz from uh, Jolie Lee, then Jamie Motley from Jamie Motley Wines. And now Rosalind Reynolds is the new assistant winemaker who makes pretty Emmy good. Wines. Pretty good alumnus. Amazing. No, I mean, well, you yeah. know, I think those people, those people are, are are known not entirely because of, but for sure in part with their relationship with Pax and the fact that Pax has mentored them in their winemaking. You know what I mean? You know, Pax right. is an amazing winemaker. Twenty years in the business for me makes Syrah that has that does and has in many blind tastings held up to some of the best uh, Syrahs produced in in France. You know. 
Yeah, I mean, he's, he's serious business. What was so it? The, him, six, the sixteen or the eighteen? I mean, Galoni gave it a hundred points, right? Sixteen for yeah. some of those sides. Yeah, yeah. So you know, um, this facility has all those people I mentioned and a few other people. Rain, which is Carlo Mondavi, Robert Mondavi's grandson, makes his wine rain here. Right. Um, uh, Martha Stoneman, one of my mentors and great friends, she makes her wines here. Jason Rupert has a little label called Ardour, which is really taken off now. Um, I feel like I'm forgetting somebody in that group, and I'm sorry if I did, but it's all right. I, think I have everybody. Uh, but yeah, so all of these people—it's an amazing little, like almost like a commune. You know what I mean? Where we help each other, we 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 rely on each other, we we look for advice from each other. It really is a creative, kind of a cool creative outlet. And we're all using the same equipment and sharing and just doing things. Like right now behind me, there's you know three different wineries doing five different things. You can hear them in the background. Right. Scott and you know it's it's just it's it's one of those things. It's an amazing community. But for me, Pax is my business partner and my partner on Monorio and Pax is mentoring me in my winemaking. You know, Pax is here to make sure that the wines he's he's the insurance policy to make sure I'm not fucking up the wines. Right. You know, like we, 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 every morning we have a meeting and go through what's happening with all the wines. And he talks to me about the things that he thinks I, we should do and why. And, you know, every year I learn more and more and more. And now I'm able to make some calls on my own, but for the most part, it's a, it's a, you know, collaborative thing. Um, Pax is there to make sure, you know, we, we get things in the, in the right order. I do pretty much all of the work. Like, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that's for sure. I'm here every right. morning at 7am and climbing barrels and, barreling down wine and foot crushing stuff and all the physical labor is, is happening because it's also stuff that I need to master as part of the, the winemaking, you know, world. It's the thing that's so hard when you're a sommelier and you're making wine. So many sommeliers quote unquote make wine, but most of them are just like slapping their labels on wine. That they're yeah. being made. I did not want to do that. I never wanted to do that. I always wanted to actually make the wine. I want to, I want to, I want to be the intricate, the, the, the most important part of the process as far as like getting things done and orchestrating it. And All right. So let's go through that process. So, you know, you're contracting the grapes. We talked about the fact that you're getting the grapes from Lodi and Mendocino, and there's a lot of great people making wine there. And there's a lot of great growers, you know, among everyone else. Um, talk to me about you know, two things, farming practices and seller practices. You know, what do you demand of the people that you contract your grapes from? So we work, we, we only work with farmers that are farming organically. That's okay. the standard, at least it, practicing organically. Right. Certification is very expensive. Right. And for the farmers we're working with to get certified, our fruit costs would only go up. So in the end, I'm trusting and, you know, being actively involved with what they're doing to ensure that we're working organically but it makes us be able to make wines that are as affordable as we do. If we wanted to have work with a certified, we, I have one certified biodynamic farmer. It's the most expensive fruit that I made. It's my make. It's my French Colombard. And you know, there's a reason it's French Colombard and it costs as much as it does. But so organics is, is the most important thing in the vineyard, in the, in, in the winery, you know, we, we, it's all natural yeast fermentations. Um, we, 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 it's a super low intervention. You know, we use sulfur minimally, if not at all. Um, you know, there's, there's no, there's no inoculation, no en enzyme inclusion. We're basically, you know, just we're, 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 we're protecting the wine in any way that we can in order to make the cleanest, most delicious, most appealing wines that are food friendly and, you know, but you're, you're leaving a few things out that I want you to tell me about. Um, is it true you do whole cluster? Yes. So all of our wait, wait, carbonic our, maceration. 
Right. So all, all and of our neutral barrels. Are, so I want you to tell, you know, sure. explain to my listeners, you know, <laughs> yeah, what yeah. all that so, is. So everything is whole cluster, mainly because cleaning a stemmer is a fucking pain in the ass. But so um, whole cl- also, tell everyone also, what whole cluster <laughs> is. It's the oh, stems okay. and, so, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, when you bring in, when, when grapes are harvested by hand, like ours are, they come in with grapes on the stems. Just like if you were to buy a bag of table grapes, you know, on those stems. A lot of winemakers believe that taking the grapes off the stems is the best way to create wines that are clean and, and fresh and not green and all, all these things, a million reasons why people destem. Um, the winemakers that I, and the reason why we don't destem, why we, so we just take those whole clusters, we put them into a, some sort of a sealed environment. So whether it's a tank or a bin, whatever, we, we, we add a little dry ice to the top of it to create a layer of gas to protect the wines, and we give it about 10 days in that situation. And naturally, within each grape, a fermentation happens. So the little fermentation is happening in this grape, which is carbonic, and they kind of explode, and the right. juice starts to come out. And then after 10 days, we press it, and then the juice comes out. We let it finish fermenting in like a, a, a concrete or a stainless situation. And then after right. the fermentation is done, we take that fermented juice, we put it into old wood barrels, and then let it age for either five or ten months, depending on if it's an early bottling or a late bottling. And then that's it. It's really kind of a and it's it's the one recipe we stick to. We just destemming is something I don't want to do because I like gone on. I like Darden Rebo. I like you know I like people. I like Dujac. I like producers that are working with only whole cluster kind of stuff. So all right. So three quick questions. Yeah. What characters or characteristics do the stems add to the wine? They well they cre- they, they, they they create like it's just fresher right it's fresher I mean, okay. if, if you think about what happens when, when when if you pull a stem off a grape you're you're like piercing a hole in it right so right. you're gonna do a lot of things when it happens you're gonna cause fermentation to start faster it's gonna get, the wines are gonna get richer they're they're not gonna have that vibrancy the stems right. also add some flavor which you know some people would complain and say you know Green. stemmy 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 yeah. flavors in in wines occurs because of whole cluster fermentation, but it's, it's not, you know, it's one of those things where I, I don't know, some people agree, some people don't. I'm, I'm not a big believer that, 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 um, there's a greenness. That gets so silly. I've heard of winemakers right. that actually take the stems off, de-stem the fruit and then ripen the stems on like, uh, in like the sun <laughs> and then funny. put it back in the wine, which is, which is fucking insane. That, that's <laughs> hot. That's high intervention. Now on carbonic yeah. maceration, is it the dry ice that adds the CO2 or do you have to add CO2? So, okay, so it's, it's for sure the dry ice is, is well, dry, the dry ice puts CO2 in the wine. Okay. It puts CO2 in, in the actual, um, the actual like, uh, container. And what that does is prevents oxidation or, you know, the, the fermentation kind of going south. So you need that veil of that veil of protection. Does, over the does it create any physical pressure, you know, on the grape or not necessarily? No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> okay. It, it, it just it just turns the oxygen into CO two, right. essentially. Um, and you know, then once the fermentation starts, you don't need to add the dry ice anymore because the the fermentation is giving off CO two, which is now then protecting the the you know the fermentation itself, but keeping oxygen out, just like we all know, you know what I mean? Like opening a bottle of wine, put it in. Right seeing it change when it's when it's when it's exposed to oxygen it can also have a negative effect when it comes to the winemaking side because you're accelerating it right all right let, let's talk about um the grapes um you're getting the grapes from lodi and mendocino you talked about you know getting some really nice old vine stuff is that a condition just of cost i mean are there grapes other places you'd love to have but the cost is prohibitive 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm working in Lodi because I want to make a bottle that costs eight. I want a bottle of wine that okay. costs eighteen. Okay, so it is. That, it's it's a price but, thing. But but not just no, but not just because also Lodi has Lodi's magical. I mean, it's it's one of the you know it's one of the oldest winemaking regions in California, um, and you know if you look at what they the, the, the tradition of that area, it's it's pretty special. And I think the one thing that people don't realize is that you know um, put like what happens in 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 Lodi is the heat again with the cold nights this is something that that really creates wines that are dynamic and unique right and i think I, for varietals like zinfandel it really makes sense would i would i would i grow, would i want to work with a farmer growing pinot noir in lodi probably not it's probably not no, the best time for it so too high yeah yeah i think i think lodi you know i stand by my belief that lodi makes lodi is a great place to to uh you know to grow grapes and, and all right wine. so let's let's talk about the grapes um we mentioned and we'll get to it we mentioned there's petite syrah in the uh skull red blend mm-hmm. um we mentioned there's infidel in there we're going to taste this infidel in a few minutes um let's get to some of the interesting grapes the mission grape you're doing primitivo columbard um you know why? Why these grapes? They were available. They have the profiles you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, I mean, well, I think the first time, the first time we started working with, with, um, with Lodi was because I wanted mission. That was the thing. Like, you know, when I first started, that that, Rio, that played into your sort of ideal of what you wanted to do. That's how I met the farmer that I now work with, who right. I get the other other grapes from as well. So. His mission vineyard, um, um, uh, Brock, uh, Brock Sellers, B R O C, um, right? B R O C, yeah. Bro- so right. Brock, Brock Sellers makes one from there, and Brockway was the one who introduced us to Mike. And then after I met Mike, Mike said, "Well, I have this old uh, Zinfandel vineyard, and I have this great Petitra vineyard. If you're interested, I was like, yeah, totally. I'd love to work with those as well.' So I went out, met him, walked the vineyards, was super excited about what I saw, and that's when we decided to make you know, the Zinfandel and the, and, and the, uh, describe the mission grape. You know, when you ask, you know, a French winemaker to describe, you know, Cobb Frank and Petit Verdot versus Merlot, they're very specific, you know, what describe the mission grape, you know, what would people expect? Yeah. I mean, it's not like any other wine you can possibly even, <laughs> it's the, it's the fucking craziest wine, the craziest grape ever. I mean, the, the clusters are huge and spaced out. They almost look like table grapes. Table grapes, There's white yeah. and red clusters. You know, in in the bunches, it's 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 strange. The, the and taste wise, I mean, what do you? Yeah, is it's, there? It's like a light bodied red wine. It's somewhere between a rose. It's almost like a like a rose. It's, it's somewhere between a rose and a super super light bodied red wine. Right. Um, Trying to think of the lightest bodied red wine, something like Pulsard from the Jura. Right. Uh, it's kind of similar to what it is. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, you, it was, it's, it's a grape that's in, it's grown in a few places down in, down in Mexico and in Chile. They call it, they call it Pais. P-A-I-S. Uh, yeah, exactly. Which is also in What's Spain. That? What's it called in Spain? In the Canary Islands or in Spain. Yeah. Listo Negra. Is the, is right. Listo Negra. Right. Yeah. So, and yeah, that's where it came from. Uh, so the journey, you know, basically the Spanish missionaries in the 1800s when they were planting vineyards for basically communion wine, this was the grape they were planting. And that's why the Californians called it mission because the missionaries were planting this crazy grape. And it you know, existed for a long time. There's a lot less vineyards than there, than there was. There are a few really old, I, I know of the legend of a few vineyards that were planted in the late 1800s. We're actually pursuing one of those vineyards right now uh, to try and work with. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for me, I wanted the, the, the philosophy of Monterio, right, is old California. That's why the right. label, the label is basically like an, an homage to the tra- old Charles Krug labels, you know, in naming it after one of the oldest, most iconic towns in West County, Monterio. Yeah. Just yep. the whole feel of it. So yeah, you definitely, you definitely get the vibe from the label. Now, what's the difference between Zinfandel and Primitivo? Isn't Primitivo genetically, you know, similar to Zinfandel? Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple different forms of Zinfandel in California. Okay. Um, there is a Primitivo clone that's been tra- that traced back, and that Primitivo that I make is that Primitivo clone. It was planted younger in this vineyard where I am. The older vines, they haven't traced back. To, actually, I don't think Primitivo has done a tracking on it, but that old is probably not the Primitivo clone. It's probably a different clone. So right. Zinfandel is actually kind of like a, it's almost like a Petit Syrah. Like Petit Syrah is like Duriff, right? It's just, it, we named it something at some point. It looked like Syrah. Somebody says, well, it sounds like little Syrah. It's just called Petit Syrah. Zinfandel was, there's a couple different grapes that are really what Zinfandel is. The Primitivo clone is probably the, one of the most famous ones and the one right. that we refer to now because it's something we know. But there are other clones. The old vine Zin that, that you have in front of you is probably not a Primitivo clone, but right. the young vines that were planted there were. So I could have done old vine Zin and young vine Zin, but I thought it was cooler to, you know, kind of like latch on to the Primitivo, you know, the fact that it's a Primitivo clone and, and you know, I don't know. Like calling everything yeah. at some point seemed a little. No, no, no. I get that. Now the <laughs> the other interesting grape which you mentioned, it's a white grape, is oh. Colombard. Yeah. That's that's an unusual grape for uh, California wines. Yeah, I mean, so Colombard comes from you know Armagnac. It's what they use one of the one of the grapes that they use to make Armagnac. So they ah. it's a high acid white grape that ripens, yeah. ripens very late. Late. Um, that's you know yeah just been used for for making uh, uh, grapes grape spirits. Um, but it appeared here in the 60s, I think, is when Colomar started arriving, 40s maybe. Um, right. And it was mainly used for, for, for jug wine uh, right. because it was one of these things that was really resilient to heat. It could grow in a, in a, in a, a lot of different climates. It was late ripening, so they could, they could get really even ripeness. But it always had tons of acidity, which you know kind of made sense. They, part of the right. blend of whatever they're making jug wines for, it was kind of the acid add. All right, and then you're making Piquette this year, right? My buddy Todd Cavallo was on the show. He brought oh, me man. a can. I fell in love with it. Um, tell yeah, everybody yeah. what Piquette is. It's definitely different. Yeah, yeah. So Piquette, I mean, I made, I made it for the first time uh, in the 19th Vintage. Actually, I made it because I tasted uh, a, a bottle of Todd's Piquette at, Mich- at um, Pinch Chinese, my friend Miguel Guillon's place. Right. Uh, and was completely blown away. And once I understood what it was, I was even more interested. So basically, it's like it's almost like a second steep of a tea bag. Right. So you're taking the you know the pressed grapes, you're putting it into a container, and then you're adding water and basically extracting the flavor and the sugar, the little bit of sugar that's left in it, and then and then after a couple of days, getting it off those skins and then creating a secondary fermentation. So it's a light bodied, easy going, and a lot of times you'll start a second fermentation to make it fizzy, just to add a little bit more you know, kind of intensity to it, but right. it's, it's almost like a sour beer is what I would compare. Yeah. It to. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I love it. I mean, it's just yeah. a great change of pace, you know, with all these canned wines, it's, you know, it's terrific. I know yours comes in a bottle. It yeah, sort of has a, well, a yellow hue to it. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So those are the major grapes in uh, Monte Rio. Um, we'll talk about where you can get everything in a minute. Um, we got about eight, nine minutes in that time. I want to do the wine list. I want to taste the last wine. But before we get into that, I was just curious on your take on this because you're 
you've always been involved with this. I mean, you've worked at the finest restaurants. You know, you've been involved with La Polet and La Fete du Champagne for many years. You know, in light of everything going on with the pandemic and the industry and Miguel's pieces and all of that, um, when the world returns to some kind of normalcy, I mean, are these events going to be fine? Are they a little out of place? Are they necessary? Are they unnecessary? You know, it sort of alludes to that white guy. Um, what's your thoughts on that? And I, this is delicate. What, what, what's, but what's the exact question you're asking me, Sam? Do you think when, do you think there's still a place for a La Paule and a La Fete du Champagne? Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know. You know I mean, when, honestly, I, I mean, I, you know, this year, this past year, I told Daniel I just didn't want to, just didn't want to be involved with it anymore, just because I need to be out in California and focus. On right. It. I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't add to it, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I wish I, I, I don't, I don't love the idea that, that, that wine has become so much of that. You know what I mean? You yeah. Know, that, that's sort of that was sort of the question. Wine has become that. It's not available. Yeah. To I mean, I don't, I don't make wine those... for those kind of people. I mean, I'll tell you what. There's no. There's no, no, no. That, you, how you, many people that go to La Palais that are buying my wines? No, no. You, problem, you man. got, you got the plausible credibility. We'll leave it at that. All right. Let's jump into the wine list. Don't be long-winded on this. Don't you know? Be spontaneous. Don't ponder. I have five questions. I asked you these same questions a couple of years ago. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? You know, what's in your fridge? What's on the table? table what are you experimenting with what are the seasons bringing for you give me a couple things yeah i mean well i think what, what i'm what i'm drinking now is i mean actually i've been drinking a lot a lot of beaujolais and i feel like beaujolais is the thing i said to you last time but beaujolais yeah. continues to be a standard for me even though the ones are getting uncomfortably expensive to what they used to be yeah. such a versatile grape it's great with it's great with all kinds of food and you know, I, I i agree yeah. you got you it's got delicious. a favorite or two yeah, I mean, I always love LaPierre. La it's definitely one of my favorites. Yeah. Foyard. Um, Pierre Coton is one that I really, really like a lot. I think those wines are pretty special. Um, yeah, I mean. Say know. no more. Yeah. All right. Since you've moved to California, do you have, what's your favorite wine and food pairing? I could tell from following you while you were in the pandemic, you were eating a lot of pork chops and steaks with <laughs> Syrah. What, what, give me, give me Patrick's favorite wine and food pairing today. Still the same? Well, we eat a lot of tacos. Actually, we use the tacos for lunch. So, what goes good with tacos? Beer. <laughs> all right, I'll take that. We don't have to. A nice Modelo. Um, all right. I guess nobody better than you can answer this. The third question has always been your favorite wine restaurant and our bar, and it really was people who were doing what you were doing at Rebel. Knowledgeable, great list, great food, great environment. What's what's good out there? If people are visiting California, are there any, you know, things around there? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, I don't even you're not, know. You're I've, not I've, doing a lot of that. I don't that. know if I've been to a restaurant since I've been That's out what here. I'm I mean, saying. You know, yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I yeah. see you go to dive bars and stuff, but... I mean, I don't even do that now because there's no, there's nothing open here. We're, you know, we're, this is one of the, I went from, I went from one of the worst places for the, for the, for the pandemic that got to the best to literally the worst. Sonoma County and Monterey are the two that have still not moved out of yeah. phase one or whatever, whatever, whatever that is. So uh, I don't know, man. I don't, all I right. So for the first out. time ever, I'm going to leave that blank <laughs> and I'm not mad Thank at you. you for that. Thanks. All right. I don't know. I'm going to look back at this. I should have done it in prep for the show, but I won't. 
I asked you the question, what's your favorite all-time wine? And I think when I structured the question, you know, I was just happy to get people like you guys in and, like, ask you, what was the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? I don't give a crap about that anymore. The question is more morphed into, you know, what's that wine that had an effect on you, that still resonates with you, that changed the way you, you know, think? What, what's that wine? I mean, if you had to pick one or two. I mean, you know, it's, I, it's obviously I'll, I'm going to say, you know, gone on because I think he's arguably the best winemaker on the planet. That's, um, you know, that's, that's, that's the answer. You know, Syrah yeah. from St. Joseph. Yeah, um, but it's not just St. Joseph. I mean, Darden Rebo, Gryo, gone on. Those three guys, consistently wines that I drink all the time, consistently wines that I'm perplexed on the fact that they can make wines that are, that are yeah. so delicious and yet. How long has Darden Rebo been around? Oh, uh, I think they started in the 80s. The oldest okay. bottle I had from them is probably 89. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, there's no, they're pretty private. It's, I visited there for the first time this past uh, before the, the year before the pandemic, um, yeah. and had a really interesting experience. But that's for another, that's for another time. But I love those ones. Love those. Yeah, ones. those are yeah. all good ones, and I'm not surprised at your answers. Um, the last question and. Um, you can answer this from all your experience, but I think I'm going to point you in a direction. The, the question is, recommend the best wine around 15, 20 bucks. Give me a red, give me a white. I always say that my kids are in their 20s. They can't bring crappy supermarket wine to a dinner as a gift. Yeah, but they yeah, can't, yeah. They um, can't afford 40 bucks. So I'm going to put this under the umbrella of Monte Rio. Um, uh -huh. Give me the best... So how much is the Colombard? 23 bucks. All right. So there's your white wine. How much is the Chardonnay? 23 bucks. Okay. So the, the white wines, best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks is Monterio Colombard, Monterio Chardonnay. And then on the red, give me your best recommendation. I mean. You said 18 bucks for the MRC Skull, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But I don't think my wines are the best. But I mean, it's it's so hard to find wines at that price point now. That's well, the no, whole no, reason no, why no. I did this because I'm so sick of fucking not being able to answer this question. You uh, me I, I'm answering it for you, so I'm gonna see. M, I'm gonna say MRC Skull, and give me one more red in that price point. Uh, I mean, I would say. Uh, I, uh, it's so hard. It's so hard to answer. <laughs> all right i'm just gonna put mrc yeah you're eating into my time wine for, for restaurants i'm totally out of touch and, and basically all the wine that i drink are wines that i trade friends for now i mean i'm drinking great wines from california that i love but i don't even necessarily know how much they cost <laughs> yeah well no i i'm very comfortable recommending your wines and praise them for it. all right are you still alive did a thing fall on your head that was a loud one. All right, so listen to me. We got to wrap up. We have about a minute. So the last wine we're tasting is your Zinfandel. It is the 2019 Monte Rio Cellars Lodi Zinfandel Old Vines. Tell me a little about this. This is one of the vineyards with, you know, vines dating back to the 30s, 40s? Right. So the vineyards planted in the 30s. You know, this was uh, all carbonic, 13% um, alcohol. The, the goal here was to 
you know, the inspiration for a lot of these wines was one wine, uh, Dardo Rebo makes a wine called uh, Cest de Printep. So it's the wine of spring. It was, right. it used to be the wine I would have told you was the best $18 bottle of wine, but now the wine costs like 35 fucking dollars. Probably thanks to my my um, habits of telling people about it. Well, you're right, um, and all your other friends. Yeah, exactly. So, but th- but that idea of carbonic whole cluster uh, f- wines, fresh wines, was the reason why I wanted to do all of what I did with Monterio. But this this Zinfandel was the one because people are like, oh, Zinfandel, it's fourteen and a half percent alcohol. It's got a lot of oak. It's so rich and dense and blah blah. blah. And I'm like, I, I never understood why why that was the recipe you had to use for Zinfandel. Why couldn't you make carbonic? So, like, couldn't you harvest it earlier? So I'm tasting it right now, and I am checking everything you said. You know, I'm checking all those boxes. It's got that great Zinfandel flavor. You know, it's very fresh. It's got nice acidity. It doesn't have that, you know, thick Zinfandel cloying mouthfeel. Um, It's not dark and rich. It's got a nice deep color, but it's not, you know, this uh, staining wine. The acidities are nice. I mean, it's just... For people who love Zinfandel, um, here's an opportunity to drink something that really is a, a, a fresh, delicious wine. What would you pair this with? Ah, I mean, I think the, the, the cool thing about this wine is it's versatile. You know what I mean? Like a pork chop would be great. <laughs> yeah, no, pork chop's perfect. <laughs> well, you would know. You've practiced that a dozen times. No, but you're right because it is a meat. It does have some fat and body, but this complements it really nice, and, and yeah. I agree with that. That So today we tasted the 2019 Monterio Cellos Lodi Zinfandel Old Vines and the Monterio Cellos MRC Red Wine Skull Label, which is a blend of the Petit Syrah, the uh, Zinfandel, and what was the other wine in the uh, in the uh, Skull? Yeah, it's, it's Mission Zin and Petit Syrah. Mission, right. Yeah. All right, Patrick, unfortunately, we could probably talk another hour, but we got to wrap up. Let me do a quick wrap up, and then I want to get some info from you. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at the Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at SBenRuby. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. A little confusing, but use the hashtag the Grape Nation on both. Um, I will post, I didn't mention it, I will post your wine list on our social media, and I will also list the wines that we drank um, on our social media sites. Patrick, if we want to get more information, or we want to buy Monte Rio wines, where do we go? I mean, there's a lot of retail stores, you know, in, in all the states that we're okay. selling it and have it. Wine Searcher, Wine Searcher is a great way to do it. But, but in New York, Verve, and in California, and they will ship anywhere in the country. Obviously, on my website, MonteRioSellers.com, you can buy it from as well. But there's a great bunch of boutique wine shops in New York uh, area that are carrying it. And, you know, I, I think... Uh, cool. It, would I, would I, you know what I always tell everybody, Ben, when people, or Sam, when people ask me that? I say... Go to your favorite wine shop and tell them to buy the wine for you. That's so all. You all have access to the to the fucking wines. If, if it's you the really type want to of your winemaker, right? Go out and make your wine shop buy the wines. That's but the if, most helpful thing you can do for us. If it's the type of shop you and I like, he'd probably have it anyway, or he uh, would maybe get it. Not. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. All right. <laughs> well, it's one day. All right. Yeah. Um, and if we want to follow Monterio and you on social media, give me some handles. Uh, at MontereoSellers.com and I am at PatrickWine.com PatrickWine. no, not .com but yeah at PatrickWine I mean Pat, at PatrickWine alright um, one last thing um, 
my friends Julia, Michael, and Jeff, they put together Vines for Votes. That's V-I-N-E-S, the number four, and Votes. They're having an online wine auction October 12th through the 16th to raise money for the ACLU and their voting right initiatives in Texas. They're going to raise money via 80 lots of wine valued at over 50000 Please go to www.vinesforvotes, that's the number four in there, .org, for more information, and on Instagram, it's fine for votes. I even donated a little lot of four cool wines. Um, I want to thank our guest and our friend, Patrick Cappiello. Um, congratulations and good luck on Monterio. Only continued success and health. Um, we will check back with you. Um, thank you for doing this. We were supposed to talk a couple months ago, but, you know, I vowed to stay with you, and I'm glad we got to uh, get together. Thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.